Welcome to Riveting Broads, a platform for women to riff on what matters most. We're your hosts, Jackie Richard and Molly Merluzzi. We found that conversation in media and politics too often is about women instead of with them, and we plan to change that. From thoughts on vulnerability, identity, privilege, culture, gender, sexuality, and everything in between, we're going to talk about it all. Join us. Hi, guys. Welcome back to Riveting Broads. Today, we are joined by Julie Flowers, at-large city councilor and minister at the First Baptist Church in Beverly, Massachusetts. Thanks for joining, Julie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We were joking because Julie's rocking the cold that I had during the first episode where I talked about how you could audibly hear my cough drops. (laughs) So we're going to work that smoky, sultry angle today. Thank you. I was saying that I can only hope I sound like Stevie Nicks. (laughs) You do. I'll sing sing for you at the end. Perfect. You'll have to cut it. Stay tuned. (laughs) Stay tuned. So today's topic... um, Uh, Jackie, Julie, and I have been um, thinking about is the concept of coming back to work and live in your hometown and all the ups and downs, vicissitudes. Oh my God. That was Here she goes. How did Jackie, she just pull that word out? It was just, I, just, I actually, that's like, did you the Google one that SAT on the way here? I remember. No, Molly Jackie, wants to troll me with her SAT vocabulary. <laughs> now I'm just owning it. I'm owning it. One time in I'm high really school. I'm really bashing her for it, but yeah, in she a loving is. way. She's judging I hear me. that. I hear yeah. that. In high school, I, in an essay, wrote, <laughs> I wrote to the extremities. And I meant to the extremes. <laughs> and extremities means like arms and legs. <laughs> that, that I do And know. I like never have forgotten it. It's been like seared into my memory. Did your teacher just circle it? Like, yeah, she was what? like circle sad face. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know what she did. She was like trying too hard. Yeah, exactly. Stop <laughs> using your thesaurus. Um, and I, I heard that message loud and clear. In college, I actually had a professor whose name was Professor Lynch, L-Y-N-C-H. And my spell check caught it and I didn't realize it and I turned in the paper and got it back and she had circled it it said professor lunch <laughs> and she just wrote professor lunch indeed oh, she was a, a Chaucer professor so the indeed was very appropriate oh that's so go. funny <laughs> coming back to your hometown we wanted to talk about um, all three of us in different ways have sort of ventured away from the North Shore of Boston and sort of ventured back in both for personal and professional reasons and we just feel like we have a lot that could be relatable to our listeners around how you are, you know, characterized by the people that have known you from youth to adulthood. Um, And then sort of the role of community and how we form community values as it relates to both who we are and what limitations and, you know, barriers we encounter along the way. And I want to add building new communities in addition to the one that you already came back to, because that's definitely something that I focus on or have inadvertently focused on (laughs) and that in itself is i I mean an uphill battle i can't imagine i mean like you've been able to do it in such a way that i think people are um feeling i don't know refreshed by encouraged by but like just changing the status quo of something that's been one way for a long time julie well that's what i was thinking yeah that you can both come back to a community that you know and also create new community even in that familiar space all the time so i'm I'm really interested in that as well, both what it is to create community and no community, but also to create intentional communities within that space. Mm. Which is really hard, I think, when you're coming back to a community that you were raised in. And maybe I'm projecting my own personal feelings and experience no, on you, relatable. but I know that for me, I was 
that I feel like I've changed so much since I was a kid and a teenager, yet those feelings still exist because I'm still in that community. So again, there's this dichotomy of who I am now versus who I was then and trying to own both and also almost re-educate the people that were in my life and then help the people who are now in my life understand where they're both coming from because it's almost two completely different people they're seeing. Is that something you can relate to, Julie? Yeah, I would say that absolutely is. And I was also thinking as you were talking about the way that we sometimes break out of the role of being a young person to community. You know, I think there's many spots and areas in my life where um, I I am who I was, but I'm also who I am now, right? And Mm -hmm. people really have made space for that. But there's also times where the other people might be making that space. And I feel like I revert to sort of feeling like a kid or feeling back in that that box. You know, I was thinking about, and it's not because of the other person. It's because of something in me or in us, right? Mm-hmm. So the other day, I have an eight-year-old who was being a, a ball kid at the Beverly High School soccer game for the boys' varsity team. And I was just there kind of watching. And um, the principal of the high school walked up who was my ninth grade English teacher, and she was doing nothing that was putting me back in that role of ninth grade Julie. But as soon as she came over, I was like, hi, Mrs. Taylor. (laughs) And so I think there's also times where we go back to that. Oh, such a good point. Yeah, and so how do we find that confidence in ourselves, even when other people are making space for, you know, you you did grow up here, but now you're an adult, when there were differences of authority maybe in the relationship before, you know, teacher-student is a, a weighted relationship she's not coming from that place, but I still am. So that's right. not something she can fix. It's you know something that I've, I have to work on in myself is claiming that confidence. Like what you were saying about making space to be who you are. And sometimes mm-hmm. maybe it comes from in us too, making that space for ourselves. Absolutely. And how do you not allow that triggered kind of anxiety? How do you not go back to that state of mind, which is like you said, kind of almost adolescent, like, oh, I'm a baby and you're the authority. Right, or I hope I say something that you think is okay. Right, right. Or I'm sure we can all relate to moving away, you kind of get the opportunity to reinvent yourself a bit, right? You get to kind of be whoever you want. There's no one who knows your story, who knows your history. You can be selective with what you tell them if you want, or you could give them the whole picture. But no matter what, it's it's on your terms. Mm. But when you're coming back home, it's almost the opposite. Where, like, for me personally, um, when I was in middle school and high school, I was not a straight-A student. I was that kid who, like, rolled into school in my pajamas and slept through class and, you know... Uh, partook in a lot of um, extracurricular activities. That, Just like reading club? Or, or like smoking weed. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of weed smoking. You guys which nothing against it. Club. Nothing against it. I think I was, I was great, on the math but, team. Yeah. Yeah. So we were opposites. Yeah. So another we thing. also were opposites, but I just don't like math. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I hate math. I was an English girl. But yeah. actually social studies, believe it or not. Um, But I also used to throw a lot of parties at my parents' house. And so I was kind of like this just, I refer to myself as almost a degenerate type. Not completely. I never like got arrested or anything like that. But that's probably part of your own psyche too. Like to what Julie was pointing out. It's like, you're like, I fit that. Whatever. A hundred percent. So I have to take myself seriously still before other people are going to take me seriously. And I think it's reminding myself that, yeah, just because I did all that stuff back in high school doesn't mean that I'm not fully capable now and I might have to retrain some of the people who knew me in high school to kind of see me differently but you know that does take confidence and time and and all that stuff so I think it's 
Yeah. But I think you're right. Yeah, that part of it is for you is is reminding yourself that you're not the same person that you were. That's all part of your story, but mm-hmm. claiming claiming who you are now, I think is sometimes part of the challenge. And I think that's what I was feeling, you know, at the soccer field too that we're, we're not in this weighted relationship anymore. It's right. two adults talking to each other and um and sometimes the hardest part like you were saying can be reminding ourselves of that. That right. I find that that with being a young woman, um, the the I don't know. Again, I know that's like my brand, but like I feel like as being a young woman, when you come to encounter, say, your dad's friend at CVS, and they're like, "So, what have you been up to?" Like, I grapple between like, you know, life's been great, lucky, feeling good, to like keep it really like we're not talking anymore, <laughs> or or which is like not my brand at all, <laughs> or to do like you know something along the lines of like. Great. I started a business doing it on my own for four years, super successful. Then I also went to dip. Like, and I'm trying to not, I mean, I never, I don't, that's not how I c- conduct myself. But like this idea of, of wanting to prove myself to them is something I also really grapple with because I find, and again, it could be a combination of my own self-doubt, right? Like my own, like I want them to respect me desire. And then it also, I do think there are times where I, as a young woman or perhaps maybe like an eccentric or politically vocal or like, you know, um, uh, to Jackie's point, like cheap, shaking up the status quo um, kind of approach. I think people like think I'm, they kind of write me off sometimes. They they don't, I don't think all the time, but I think that there are moments where I feel that way. And because it's not something like, oh, I'm doing a podcast called Riveting Broads and they're like, oh, that's for women, right? Or like whatever, like whatever the, the, the piece of my story it is that I'm, I find is being judged the harshest. I like try to overcompensate in a way. And that to me, I think is a symptom of being back in my hometown where I'm dealing with like my own insecurities and my changes in self over the past, you know, 15 years. And I also feel like there's a level of that which is gendered because I think I don't know, a lot when I'm thinking of the stereotypical like like young broy like insurance salesman or realtor or whatever where they're like the the archetype like the stereotypes rather that are coming in and saying like you know I don't know I just feel like the bar is lower in a way like I feel like I need to have like a really wild impressive story whereas they might just be like I'm working for my dad I don't know <laughs> like or you know like I did work yeah. for my dad for a while you know? yeah yeah no I, I hear what you're saying I was thinking as you were talking that I both can understand that and that resonates but there's also times I was realizing where I almost play down anything that I'm doing and I was thinking as you were talking about what is I wonder what that's about and I think that's also gendered maybe too that um I don't want people to think like oh she's always talking about her accomplishments or she did this or she did that so I I feel like yeah there's also a part of me maybe that tries to well because I do yeah I this from a genuine place I really love people and love connecting with them I think you know, the the different kinds of work that I do in my life come from a sincere place of I really love people and love to hear their stories and I want to connect with mm-hmm. them and understand them. But then I feel like sometimes I try to minimize or play down things that I feel like might feel, I don't know, un- unrelatable. You know, so it's mm-hmm. like I don't want them to think they can't talk to me or mm-hmm. can't be real with me. Um, totally. So, so I think it's, 
what you were saying really resonates, Molly. And then I think it's sort of this both and where there's moments where people said, like, how are you? I just be like, oh, great. How are well, you? That's right. yeah. 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 No, that's exactly right. Thing. It's like both have to happen at once. And I guess it depends on who you're talking to. But I think largely it's our own anxieties. Right. Yeah. Well, I also think it's one of those things where it's we don't want to appear too self-interested because ultimately the main goal is to hear about what someone else is working on so we can help them and this is something I've become hyper aware of because I'm sure we can all relate in the you know the well I know this person I can do that for you and I can do that for you and I feel like it just dawned on me recently actually that that can come off like really self-absorbed like you're self-promoting because I think a lot of people aren't used to people just being interested in them and, and wanting to help so it's somewhat of a defense too so then in order to mitigate that we kind of diminish what we're trying to do so that way we don't come across and this goes back into our last week's episode of you don't want to come across too passionate too intense and and turn people off it's something i deal with a lot and i think it's one of those things where you have to kind of know your audience but also be self-aware enough to know that like this is just who we are and if people think you have the wrong motive then that's their problem you know and maybe they're just not used to it yeah, I also think it depends on the, like, we're in three, I was just writing down our roles, like, uh, you know, as a city councilor, an at-large city councilor, a, um, as a minister, as someone who is an organizer and a, a sort of uh, movement builder, and then as a consultant, all of those words, you know, in their own right, have a level of authority in them. And like I found in the world of consultancy, right, like coming back to your hometown is strange in it's beautiful in so many ways, right? Like we have our existing network. We're privileged to be able to to have a foundation in a place and a fluency in a place that gives us certainly an advantage, I think, in our, our, our you know, daily practices. But I do think like the nature of my business is I'm a consultant is the term I've decided to use for whatever reason, because that's what I do. Like I most of the time I work with clients either locally or nationally that are saying, Hey, this is my problem. Tell me what you think about it. How do you, you know, a strategist is the one I've been sort of leaning on, but consultants, the one that's mostly palatable for folks. And I think just the nature of being a consultant is intimidating to people. So like I would come into this conversation and say something like, you know, you know, whether I work with a client or a um, nonprofit or for-profit and say I'm a consultant, sometimes the people that work, like say it's the CEO that hires me, the people that work under them could be like, who are you and what are you doing here? Or like, oh, are you his, you're someone's daughter or you know your sister works on that thing. And so you you immediately, like to Julie's point from before, is you regress and you're like, so I'm 15 and I'm insecure and you guys <laughs> think that I'm good at softball and that's it. And da, da, da. You and are good at softball. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so again, that was a plug for my softball career. Um, but like the, the, the takeaway there is like I – I, I the the mechanisms that go through my brain the machinations that go through my brain are like wait what like uh don't you look at her don't I was you, looking don't at her for the look, SAT word don't thing. you look at her but like um, oh I wasn't even she surprised was, by that one. she was like, like whatever there's not enough syllables for me <laughs> yeah. to raise an eyebrow <laughs> but like the problem my brain is goes through all these cycles that I don't feel like they're aware of where I'm like I'm like oh gosh yeah that is my sister but I'm not just I'm like not just her sister so I also I know you knew my sister from so she was a young or whatever like yeah and then I feel like I have to qualify my presence and that to me I think is a little bit of the nature of my title as consultant because I've I've learned over the years to instead go in and say like 
I am someone who works in marketing and I have expertise in, you know, brand development and storytelling. And so my job is to come in and help you feel like you're you're supported in the way you need to be supported. You're the expert, right? And that's just like a learning about my industry. But I think it's it's magnified by like being in my hometown because when I do work with local people that perhaps know my family or, and you know, my family's wonderful, but we're not that, in, you know, <laughs> impressive, you know, in the scheme of the world, right? But we're like, when you think about when people know you, they think of your family and then you're a part of that brand. And so there's a lot of implications in that too. For me, exploring the idea of title, like you as an organizer, like you're telling people that they, they should connect with certain people. And so you're in a position of authority saying like, I know who is right and who isn't. And then they're like, well, why should I trust your advice? Because right. you're a local somebody I know or whatever. And in Julie's case, like in a different way, but I think similarly is that you're in a point of giving counsel to people in a place where you used to be just one of the folks that were sort of growing and changing in, in your hometown, you know, I don't know. And maybe I'm forcing the issue of title, but I think it's interesting. No, I think you're touching on something that Julie, you could probably relate to most, which is um, to be exposed in your community. Mm. It's one thing to just be from a place and know people and have gone to school there and own a house and whatever you go out to eat, you patronize the local places. It's another thing to have your name across the community Mm. and for them to know who you are for a specific purpose and to hold you accountable for something. I feel like, I mean, from a step, step down couple steps down from that as a community organizer that's that's a term I'm just starting to become comfortable with because it is very intimidating so that's one of the things that for me personally just to give you a little anecdotal um and for our listeners not everybody well yeah yeah exactly for our listeners so like I said I wasn't miss popular in high school so for me to come back and try and start this community is in my hometown and surrounding is very intimidating because now I'm connecting with all sorts of people I never connected with in high school. Maybe I was intimidated by, mm. maybe I didn't like, you know, but now it's the, the more you do, the more people know who you are and what you're working on. So how do you, how do you deal with that? Cause I feel like that's a lot of pressure for me personally. I put a lot of pressure on myself. Yeah. I, I think everything that you both have just said really resonates. And I was thinking about, both the title part and the connecting with people that you maybe knew in different ways or maybe didn't know as well. And you know the, the title piece where it was really resonating for me is I often even struggle if I'm especially at an event mm. and people say, how do you want to be introduced? Um, I really struggle with that because you know my my official professional title in my day job is that I'm a reverend and so and, and in my church at First Baptist we don't use that. We're pretty informal so we're just, you know, people call me Julie, but that is my formal title. But also sometimes, especially recently, I'm at events more because I'm a city counselor at large in Beverly. And so it's the, I've been invited there sort of in that role. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes, and sometimes there's overlap. So, you know, recently I was at an event for an affordable housing developer in our area for Harbor Lake Community Partners. And I was there sort of in both roles and so then it's and they also said you're the first speaker so you can introduce yourself no one will introduce you so then that kind of put that question of how do you name yourself on me you know sometimes it's by default like someone else calls you up to the mic and you're like well however they said it is fine which is how I feel but then I was sort of confronted with that decision of what do I say and for some people here at this event 
I'm here because of my connection, my professional connection to a specific community of faith. And for some people, I'm here because of my other professional connection as a, a local elected official. And so I sort of always go with, these are all my titles. I kind of just say like, I, you can call me, but I, then I sort of try to make it, and I, and I mean this, you can call me whatever you want because you can call me, you know, Reverend, you can call me Julie, you can call me counselor at large, but what really matters to me is about the connection. And so I just try to say that, like, just call me what you want and, and I'll be happy to enter into conversation with you. And I mean that, but I think as, as Molly was talking, I was thinking about, yeah, sometimes our titles are both identifiers for other people, but they can also... I think where I get worried is they can feel like um, they can feel like they remove you from being able to connect because people mm-hmm. can feel like oh a reverend or like right. oh a city counselor or oh a consultant or community organizer and what if that becomes the thing that makes it feel hard to connect and so I feel like I don't titles help us identify sort of who we are in the world now and what we're doing but I always don't want them to become the thing that causes the rift. And especially like reverend for me is such a weighted title because it can, you know, people have lots of experiences with faith. And in, and I always say in my tradition, um, which is Christian, some Christian churches have also done a lot of harm and they've hurt people or, um, you know, exclude people. And, and the church that I get to serve is, is not. It's really inclusive. It's a welcoming and affirming church. Um, you know, it, it's a church that would hire someone like me, and you know, I'm a lesbian, single mom minister. So that tells you something about that community. And yet, I I know that I walk through a world where a lot of people have been hurt by faith. And so, I want to not have that be the thing that that feels like a scary, isolating. Right. We're on two different sides. So I guess Jackie, that kind of also brings me to what you were talking about, like building those connections with people, even people that maybe you knew or you knew in a different way. And that definitely resonates with me. I feel like there are a lot of people in Beverly who grew up here. They grew up with me or they're a little older or a little younger. They know my sister who is a little younger than me. And I think we all kind of come out of this context where maybe we know each other or we knew about each other in high school. And so I almost feel like we're in this mutually agreed upon, and maybe this is not true for everybody, but I wonder if this resonates with you, this sort of mutually agreed upon like to build this community together as adults, we kind of all have to also agree to let go of what we like thought. A, there's a refresh or new. button. Yeah. yeah, like whatever yeah. you thought about me in the in high school, we could also, yeah, like refresh and, and start over. Definitely. Yeah. It I, makes me think of this story, or well, this this girl I know who I went to high school with, um, she's lovely. I, she's great. I've always loved her. And her, we have a really close mutual friend and. It's funny because doing, like, I've just started calling myself a community organizer, right? And I think that's... Which is a really cool title. You should claim that for sure. It is a cool title. I think... I love it. Or an advocate, activist, anarchist, whatever you want (laughs) to... I prefer anarchist, if I'm being honest. But (laughs) um, I think they go hand in hand, really, because you start off in this community as Julie Flowers, the individual, Jackie Richard, the individual, and now we're stepping back into these communities with these new titles these new roles, you know, consultant Molly Merluzzi. I think it's important that we maintain our confidence in what we're working on and not let those little old insecurities creep in. For example, this girl who I, I really like, we were hanging out at my friend's house one day, and I'm, I'm the same as you. When people ask me what I'm working on, I'm just like, oh, a bunch of stuff. You, you don't want to hear about it. It's boring. When I don't really feel that way, but mm-hmm. I don't want to turn them off because, like, 
what I'm into isn't everyone's cup of tea. And for a lot of people, it's a really intense topic that they either can't relate to or don't even want to bother. So this girl and I, she was like, wow, she was joking. She was like, you're making PBD great again, huh? And I, I was just like, okay, yeah. Uh, not not true. Right. But, but also associatively with... Well, yeah. But it, <laughs> almost like she was saying it, not in a condescending tone, but she was joking. And, and for oh. me, I in my head, I'm like, well, yeah, I'm trying. But it's also uh, you want to be taken saying. seriously by your peers and see that like... I'm working extra hard for people like you who live in this community. And now we joke because I'm on a couple different committees with her mom. Mm. So it's like this, you know, so her mom and I are involved in the community together. And it's almost, I think to my peers, a little nerdy what I'm doing. And I think that's that's what I've had to get over is the, the idea, their perspective of what I'm working on and kind of checking that out the door and knowing that it's just it's just part of the nature of the job. There's always going to be that. But when you're at home and you're doing it in the community you grew up in, it's, I think it's extra um, trying for me personally. I have a, a friend who is, she's always really good about trying to help me keep stuff like that in perspective. And she grew up on the North Shore, but not in Beverly, but lives here now. And um, she frequently will remind me that she saw something on Facebook, I think probably like a, a meme, but um but she often will remind me when I kind of get in my head about that. She'll say, remember, I saw that thing that said other people's opinions of you aren't your business. Yes. Um, which makes so much sense when she says it to me, but it's really hard. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like I, that's where I really struggle because I both care so much about the community and the people in it, but I also really, I care about relationship. And so mm-hmm. then I feel like, but I but I want, I want them to know that I sincerely want to be in relationship. And yet she's also right and it's kind of what you're saying about you have to let go of feeling like maybe your peers think it's nerdy or they don't understand what you're doing because at the end of the day people do carry we all do right we all carry thoughts or assumptions in our head that we can be working on all the time but if if we all spend time trying to get into everybody else's head and figure out what they're thinking about everything that we're doing or every moment yeah and then try to correct for that i think it would almost it's so daunting we we would just be like paralyzed we wouldn't be able to do anything that feedback loop yeah like it's like i'm you're we're constantly looking for like you know affirmation from external forces in our world like i just wrote down um i care what people think and i just feel like i i'm like my name's molly and i care what people think because i i I, I also care what i know and i think too and, and that's i think enough not i could hear myself saying that to my son in a few years when like somebody says something bad to him and I'm going to say, and you, you as a, a mom of an eight year old, you know, being able to say like, you know, we shouldn't care what other people think. It doesn't matter. And it's true. I think on some levels, it doesn't matter what other people think. It shouldn't define who you are, but I guess to a certain extent, I was just realizing if I was talking to my son and it was like, you've been really unkind to someone, it should matter if it should matter if you're doing an unkindness that other people receive yes. you that way. So I, I guess there's limitations, obviously, to everything, right. even on Facebook. <laughs> I know. Well, I wrote, I wrote, like, I care what people think. And I do stay through the lens of, like, integrity and yes. respect. Like, I want people to think I'm a good person. I want people to think I'm an impressive person because I've worked hard. I want people to, you know. And so I don't think there should be shame at admitting that. There's a part of me that even now saying it out loud is like, everyone's going to think I'm a jerk. But I just, I, but I think it's true. Like, I think it's important 
important for me to say out loud, like, it does matter what people think of me. It matters that I was a different size pants in high school to now. And, you know, like, I, that matters to me. And that's like a change that I have to acknowledge and know that their opinions of me is not what defines it, but that I understand the implications of how I feel and how I exist in this world. And that's what matters to me, you know? So I do, I want to own that. Like, I, it, it bothers me if I, by insecure, and that's where insecurities come from, sure. And then the second part I wanted to talk about that you both were referencing, which is like the past self and the present self. So like the past version of Molly and the present version of Molly, there's aspects of the past that have come forward. There's some that have stayed behind and then there's new things that have joined. But the, the, but there's also that present self, stay with me people, that present (laughs) self that is still evolving. So like, it's not like it's the past self and now this fully evolved like version of what I will be forever is here now. It's like, I'm still figuring, like, just to, it made me think of it when Jackie said she'd just come into terms with the term community organizer and, like, maybe that's who she's been for a while and whatever, but, like, you're kind of owning it and you might change that as you evolve as a professional and, and a person. And for me, I've only recently become comfortable saying I own my own business. Like, I have strategists. I have employees. Like, I mean, like, I, <laughs> yeah, Felicity. Um, but, like, I, <laughs> but it's funny to me to, like, get to a place where I have to own that without the joke. Like, I need to, right. and I'm, clearly I'm still working on it, right? So, like, I, I do think it's important for us to be confident in where we are now. But when we're talking to those people that sort of cause those anxieties or make us feel regressive in some ways about our own self-confidence and based on their presence and our own insecurities, we also have to acknowledge that we're a work in progress mm-hmm. and um, process work in progress. Yeah, I think that progress yeah, is I, right. Both, both work. Probably. Okay. Well, we're both of those things. And I think, <laughs> you know, like it's just, I, I think that's just for me a big important part to say here is like, I'm not like, guys, look at me. I figured it out and now I'm back, Beverly. <laughs> like, I'm like, no, I don't have it figured out. In fact, I'm very far from that. And frankly, I'm winging it all the time and hanging on by a thread. And I'm just trying to be a better version of myself every day. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah, yeah, I always say for all of us, this is something I talk about sort of in my professional life, but all of us, I phrase it as the pe- we're always in the process of becoming the people we're always becoming. Mm, um, I love that. And so I think, and I think that's true of our communities too. I mean, just sitting here thinking about, you know, all three of us having come back to communities that we knew and grew up in and care about. And those communities evolve too because the people within them are. So just the way that kind of all of us are in the process of becoming who we're always becoming. I love that you said, you know, it's not like there's present, present Jackie, present Julie, present Molly, and that's it. Right. Although I also like, it was like a little Christmas carol, like yes. travel there. It was just, it really, yeah, it was yeah. Scrooge. Yeah. I do feel like there, the, the past, I always joke about like how past Molly, thank God she has her shit together because present Molly wouldn't have remembered that meeting. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like I have to like, I like manage up to my future self. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I otherwise would be like, wait, where am I supposed to be right now? Oh, thank God. Like past Molly is just calling out. She's right. like, right, you got this. Here's the address. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's something like, well, actually being on this podcast has been really helpful too, because, you know, each week we get to listen to our own feedback for ourselves and each other. And I've learned so much just listening and learning. Something I'm learning is to 
always humor myself because you you can't take life too seriously. But we we joke that we get to the the bottom and we get to the core subject of things with people because we have self-deprecating humor. Mm. Therefore, it disarms them. But now I'm realizing, for me personally, where that self-deprecating humor comes from and that it's actually not to my benefit at Mm -hmm. all. Because if I want to take myself seriously... But through that self-deprecation, I'm teaching other people to not take me seriously. And so by doing that, I'm opening myself up completely to their criticism and Mm. their, their feedback loop. And it's really just starting to hit me like a ton of bricks of, oh... All of these personal insecurities I've been harboring are are really largely self-imposed by people who I haven't really fully allowed to understand me. Mm. And I think it, there's a lot of that that comes into what we're doing, which is how do you find that that fine line of not giving away your entire life story and everything on your mind, also be personable, but not come off as weak. And I think it goes back to like your titles, you know, the title thing of like not knowing how to be introduced to just... And it doesn't really matter because all we want to do is appeal to people. That's not weakness. That's compassion. But it's often um, misinterpreted, I think, as insecurity. I think it's, it's so wise. And I also think it's very gendered. You know, yes, like we absolutely. always talk about our self-deprecating humor is is not like to the point. Like, I think we're th- you can wield self-deprecation as like. Um, as like your brand. I don't think that's our brand. I think it's just a, a choice we make a lot of times to make other people comfortable. And the truth is we're not necessarily feeling comfortable, but right. that's like our way of like disarming the moment, whatever that is. But I do think that that is, at least in my my lived experience, it's a gendered thing where like it's the same reason why sometimes I think you know, I ramble because I'm trying to say the right thing in the right way. And I think that that's can be very gendered as well. And I, I'm so aware that it's happening. It's almost like I'm having an out of body experience where I'm like, Oh, word vomits on and like, can't stop. And I'm so nervous. And now I'm down a hill and let me tell a weird joke. And here we go. Like, that's like my, like both worst maybe and good best quality is that it's like funny, but then you're right. It does undermine. It also reinforces like, the idea that success is something that we shouldn't be proud of right. or confidence or achievement or whatever because we're trying to say, like, wouldn't it be silly if she was really telling us how great the fact that she built this cool organization was? Like, she would be – whether it's, like, someone writing you off as cocky or, or, you know, uninformed but, like, thinks you're better than you are or whatever the thing is people do about anybody who says they're successful. I don't know. I think that there there's a long way to go for me to feel comfortable talking about me being successful. But at the same time, I'm actively trying every day to sort of, you know, tout the things that I've accomplished in a way that feels authentic to me but doesn't feel like I'm doing it for someone else. Does that make sense? It does. I was thinking even what we define as successful is probably gendered. I think we still have these notions of success that are like a carryover from when it was you know, pro- primarily men out in the world, in the workforce, and women were at home. And even this notion that you know being at home is somehow not successful. I recently saw something, again, on, on the internet, but it was basically trying to make the point, and I think this is right, that women, if, if there are moms or or dads, you know, who are staying home, the person staying home isn't um, being supported entirely by the other person who makes the income, but they're also supporting the person's ability to be out working. But I think um, because because we know that otherwise, if you're out working, and I, you know, I'm a single mom, so um, I need to find a way for some someone else to step in when I'm at work and take care of 
Emmett or get him where he needs to go. And for a lot of people, I'm lucky Emmett's grandmother can do that for him a lot. But a lot of people, childcare is this incredibly costly thing. So if you have someone staying home with your children, you are, that's also a support role that's allowing for the other person to be out in the world. But I think that's working, you know, in that moment. But even that's not always how we're accustomed to thinking about success and what's where and what work means and what good work is and what what work is valued you know i think we could go down a whole path of even uh, that should how be a, much that is, should be a whole other time because i'm like, like salaries so for different things yeah yeah and then we'll stay at home mom just to start but all roles but like and how that's gendered but i had recently a friend of mine who i won't mention but she's a stay-at-home mom she was like a big wig a big wig i don't know why i said it like that <laughs> she was a big deal working um emphasis on the wrong syllable um she is um syllable. it was from a really so bad movie British. with mike myers no, I said it. It's oh, you probably, said it as a, a joke. Okay, yeah, got it's it. Silly. Um, anyway, I was raised Christian too. I haven't seen anything, any movies. Like <laughs> oh, oh, that's so interesting. I didn't realize yeah. that was a repercussion of that. Yeah, that makes sense. I've probably seen, seen enough in some circles, right? Yeah, just, some, yeah. some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, right. Hers was a, a stricter version. Mine was a messed up version. <laughs> <laughs> I was um, one of those people who was hurt by faith. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you I, listen to the first episode, Megan. There's a lot. Yeah. Talks a lot about it. Well, I was going to say, she. so my friend about the stay-at-home mom thing, she was like a big wig for the government and like had staff and people working for her. And then when she had a, her child... Um, she decided to stay at home and it wasn't, it was a decision that, you know, her, her husband was able to make money for them to pay the bills they needed to pay and she could be with her child and it was more affordable for them because daycare is so expensive if you don't have, you know, family nearby to help out and, when you crunch the numbers, it's like, well, I might as well. And so she made that decision and she was proud of it and ha- and she still is. I mean, she's still in it, but she felt like she was, she was, she met someone and someone said, Oh, you're a stay at home mom. Like this, this couple. And she was like, yeah, yeah, I am. And she, she was projecting her own insecurities around what that meant for her and it, what they were interpreting as what that meant for her and so forth. But it's really goes back to like what we define as success. And like, I don't know. I have Lou goes to daycare and she only has him for like seven hours or whatever. And I think she's a freaking hero. Like, I don't know how, <laughs> like that job is really hard for young babies too. Yeah. But, um, you know, just the idea of coordinating a household, like figuring out bills and getting groceries and making the emotional laborious decision, which Dan and I have been talking about a lot, which is deciding what to make for dinner. <laughs> it's like a really, like, I feel like it's like this gamble is like, who's going to think about it tonight? Are you going to think about it? Cause I, my brain can't handle another thought and vice versa. But I just think about that with stay at home moms. They feel, they feel like they're not valued and because society says they shouldn't be. And I, I don't know, that matters to me. No, I was thinking that so much of what we're talking about right now is sort of like loops back around to our our original piece about what is it to build community because I think where we're going and I, I think you're right that it could probably be a whole other like episode um, of the of the podcast but I think thinking about what success is and where it's gendered and our understanding or what's a holdover but also the expense of childcare, the mm-hmm. way that we value or don't value in our society, early childhood educator, you know, that's a really traditionally, traditionally a very low paid position, even educators generally. So I was just thinking all of these things, there's some gendered weight to it. And I also think for me, it comes back to what does it mean to be building the kind of communities that we want to build? Because I think 
around this table, you know, we all know that there's people who they they can't afford childcare, they can't afford daycare. Um, they have to make those those choices. It stretches their budget so much, and yet at the same time, as daycare is so expensive, the people providing the care often are undercompensated and then can't necessarily afford the things that they need in their life or for their family. And so I think about then really what we're talking about is the building of community and how we try to think about continuing to build communities that are always becoming what they're becoming, right? So what would it mean? I always think about what would it mean to be as elected officials, as leaders, as people in our communities, as community organizers? um, What would it mean if sort of the first value that we we went to when we tried to make decisions or think about it came from um, a question about being guided by love and love for other people, which I think mm. is not always how communities, especially in city halls, that's not always where people start. <laughs> Molly and oh, I are Molly's, both just gazing at Julia across Our the eyes table. just turned into big saucers. I, and I, we're feel, just, I feel really lovely She has right like now. a purple oh, light around her. I love you. I think we're kindred spirits. Oh, I think so too. But you know, in city halls, She's my person. in city halls all over, or like state legislatures, everywhere, it's, I think... Not that people aren't motivated to do those things because they love their community. I think lots of people run for office because they are. But then when you get down to the nitty gritty, so much of it becomes about money, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. How much? Who can afford what? How do we stretch the budget? How do we accomplish what we need to do? And I think those are important questions. But sometimes I just wonder, what would happen if we reframed it to come from a place of like, what's the most loving and just thing Mm -hmm. to do for Mm -hmm. this community? And then how do we put the money in place to make it happen? Yes. You are speaking my language. Thank you. 100%. I think it's so important, especially so um, I made my own major when I went to UMass through the BDIC program, um, bachelor's degree with an individual concentration. It's a great program for anyone who's not sure what they want to do. She told me that on our first work date. That is very cool. Well, it was one of those serendipitous things where I was wanted to be an interior designer. And I think it's also going back to we're always becoming what we're becoming looking back to like (laughs) I love that phrase I love it I love it too because I sometimes I reflect back on like throwing parties at my parents house and how successful they were and they never really got out of hand but it was always a great time and the whole point was to bring people together that I wanted Mm -hmm. there selfishly that's why I did it because I but anyway so it's funny how we're constantly working towards these things so I I went to UMass with the intention of being an an interior designer. So I signed up for the interior design program, but it got cut my first semester there. So that's why I ended up studying sustainable design. And it was supposed to be like eco-friendly interior design. But then I started taking more classes on society, ecology, the media, and the effects on how it makes us feel. And I started realizing, oh, wow, society's really broken. And, you know, I love decorating, but it's clearly it's showing me that there's a lot more to be addressed here. So I think it's interesting because it really changed my perspective and it changed my political viewpoints a lot, too, which this goes back to where I started and coming back. My views are completely different. I am like so progressive, so liberal. Back in the day, I was not. I was way more conservative. So I definitely think it's really really interesting to kind of like bring it back full circle and take your new viewpoint and try and go back into your community and make those kinds of positive changes because now you're having to almost educate the people that might have been authority to you on the reality of the situation and you're fighting for it and the whole point of me bringing this up was my takeaway from that was 
also my takeaway from Christianity, treat others how you and they want to be treated, love your neighbor. Um, but we have to start with the bottom up. Trickle down economics don't work. They, they keep the wealth at the top. The best thing we can do for our communities is to be that compassionate person who's look. Call me whatever you want. I just want to listen and see what your needs are mm-hmm. and where can I allocate some resources to further address those needs. And I think that's the beautiful thing about taking a step back, becoming who you are or you know, getting on that trajectory and then immersing yourself back in that community and saying, look, I'm not, I'm not who I used to be, but I'm, that's part of me and I've grown so much, but I also want to help you grow. I want to help this community grow. And I think it's actually a strength to have left and come back and have that different approach. And I think it will make a difference in a lot of people's lives. Maybe they just um, haven't fully become aware of how much so yet. But another thing I want to touch on in regards to stay-at-home moms too, I, maybe I brought this up in a different episode, but there was a dad who and he worked full time and he came out with a kind of editorial article i don't remember what the publication was but he said i can't afford my wife and she's a stay at home mom and he was like she's oh a God, chef look it up. she's a nanny oh i think i remember this yeah, yeah she she cleans the house she is a um oh my god she does the transportation there's a like a chauffeur it's just exactly thank you she's a chauffeur so and he added up the salaries of each of those individuals and if they did it full-time and the price would have been astronomical so stay-at-home moms are actually worth way more than technically you know their partners who are out working full-time so if you look at it in that respect they're also raising children so and it gives you that confidence too like for people that aren't stay-at-home moms or stay-at-home parents that are perhaps they're working full-time, two parents working full-time, you know, when we were talking about folks that don't have the privilege of giving one, it's not a privilege always, but I mean, the the op- the option of having one parent stay home because the other person's salary is enough, mm-hmm. maybe that other person's salary isn't enough, and so they both have to work, and then all of those tasks that you've, at, you've just outlined are still having to be handled. It's mm-hmm. like, it gives you the confidence when you're, and for those of you listening who aren't in a position where you can have a stay-at-home somebody, um, um, and you figure it out anyway, the confidence to know that you're killing it. Because i that's fascinating to me. And, you know, i you talked about having both of you touch on community and how going back into your community and sort of identifying the issues that are the most important and driven by a place of kindness and love. I love that. Mm-hmm. I also think the – so where I stumble on that is that not with the it's the concept, but with the execution. So, and I'm sure you, and I'd be interested to hear what you both have encountered in your roles, different but related, um, in the community around, you know, I think the only way to achieve the environment with which you're suggesting is through honest and empathetic conversation. And it's educating folks on how issues work. It's reinforcing empathy throughout all of your approaching so that approaches so that you know when you're engaging with someone that's like not in my backyard around affordable housing because they have a racial or a preconceived notion around what that would mean for them. Um, 
you know, sitting down and having an honest, empathetic conversation instead of like a town hall where people have to like stand up and say something in front of people, which is not everyone's comfort zone. So what ends up people what ends up happening is people stay home and they either don't vote or they don't participate and they don't change the conversation. So I'd be interested in you know, I wrote modernized tools for communication. Like maybe we do a live stream and maybe we, you know, and maybe we offer and like I'm just thinking from a marketing campaign perspective, like how do we get grassroots organizers not just for elections but for issues you know like how do we get movement happening around the things that are going to matter to us going forward and both of you perhaps would have the insight to that well this isn't doesn't necessarily answer the solution for this but i also think what you're raising is important and i just wanted to sort of note that another thing i think about often is that even even the notion of how we currently engage around local issues, particularly on the most local level, you know, there's like, like you were saying, there's like town halls or, you know, Beverly, if there's an important issue, there's often a public hearing, whether it's before the planning board, or the city council or the school committee. But I think one thing it's important for us increasingly in all communities to remember is that even the ability to come out and organize or participate in that way is not just sometimes not people's comfort zone, which is really true. Sometimes it's really hard for people to get up and speak, you know, on like public access TV sure, and in front sure. of their elected officials. But it's also an issue of um, removing obstacles because it's also a position of privilege to be able to come out at night yes. and to be at those meetings. Usually city meetings have, have to happen in the evening unless, you know, there's bigger cities like we're talking about Boston. They have full-time city councilors. They might have hearings all during the day. But we're, you know, when you're talking about a local municipality, Beverly, Peabody, Salem, you're also talking about people, with the exception of mayors, who are doing it as sort of part-time on the side. Um, and so then things happen at night. But I always, I always think about people who work a second shift, have two jobs, have kids that they have to be home with or they can't afford childcare. So I think mm. there's also obstacles to even getting out and making your voice heard. And I, I think we know that about voting too, that often when you track where voter turnout is high or low in a particular community, areas that are uh, of lower socioeconomic standing often track with lower voter turnout. And I think then people, I, I think a misstep that that society makes is to say, well, people don't even bother to engage in those areas. They don't bother to come out and vote. And I think increasingly it's important for us to be asking ourselves what might be keeping people from being able to vote why why can't they attend the planning board why are their voices not being heard and think about how we can remove obstacles you know one Mm -hmm. thing we've talked about in beverly like just the seeds of but i'd love to see us go further is even trying to have like child care at public hearings public meetings so if people want to come and and they have their kids there's you can bring your kids making that that. yeah yeah and even my my eight-year-old's pto has this is like on a tiny microcosm but they've worked really hard to make sure there's child care at pto meetings at night because that's the same thing you know parents who can be at pto it's great but sometimes it's it's a it's even a matter of privilege who can be at pto meetings and have a voice have a voice in that organization that's like advocating for what's needed at the school so I think that's not the only solution. Childcare is not it, the only thing, but I love your notion about like what other ways, because when you're talking about live streaming or modern communication, I think that's all part of this question of how do we remove barriers? Let's think exactly. creatively. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of barriers to access. I think for me, what I've seen, what's most effective is it's appealing to people's self-interest. Mm. Maybe it's a cynical, jaded viewpoint, but I, that in my personal experience in the last couple of years, that's really 
how you get people to mobilize is when it's something that directly affects them or Mm. will directly affect them. You see that with climate change. Some people really care because they see the long-term repercussions. Other people are not affected by it in their daily lives, although other people in the world are. It doesn't, it goes back to the me mindset. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't apply to them. Therefore, they don't feel like they have any skin in the game. But, and I think it's interesting. You're making, speaking of elections and barriers to access, it's, it's systematic oppression is really what it is. It's systems created to keep people of lower socioeconomic um, demographics in that demographic, for example, or not for example, but, um, Years ago, when I I used to live in Vermont on this kind of like commune thing, and my boyfriend in the time and I decided that we would go to France and woof. Have you heard of woofing? Yes. I only learned of it yes. from you. So for for our listeners, woofing is um it's an acronym for um what is it? I think it's worldwide opportunities on organic farms or something like that. Um, so we went to this farm and it was really interesting because it was during their presidential election. So I got to see firsthand how that worked in France. And um, it's a national holiday, so everyone can go vote. And it was a big thing, like it was a big deal. People would all go together, they'd bring their kids, they, everyone was super, super involved. Also fun fact, it's you can actually get fined for um, I think it was 200,000 euro, any news station that tried to predict the results of oh, an election. Interesting. Wow, yeah. that's like the opposite of a yeah. world, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. But they didn't want to sway the voters. So in France, it was all about access and it was all about equity in that regard. Um, so I found it very interesting and it created you know, quite the contrast for what we're coming with. So I think we're talking about it in the context of what we're dealing with now. But what we're all trying to do is take each nuance, each barrier, and, you know, open the opportunity for people to have more access. And I think with that, you have to be vulnerable, you have to be open, you have to be willing to kind of check your ego at the door. But also, we we have to have conviction Mm -hmm. in what we're doing and knowing that even if people don't fully understand it, to kind of check that insecurity at the door and know it's moving towards a bigger Yeah, that's a great point. And and something that's come up recently in my travels is, is the idea of local versus national right Mm -hmm. so like you know issues that are laced in perhaps you know some discomfort around new notions whether it's you know the the trans bill or climate change or things that are polarizing in our country in a way that's it's you know depressing for me um, because it feels like something that's if we were leading with love and kindness and acceptance or just like with the general intention that things should be just, um, those feel like no-brainers to me. Mm-hmm. Like, they just feel like, oh, well, yeah, do you do you and I'll do me and we're good, you know? And I think about that with local politics and coming back to my hometown and being like, well, I went to college and now I'm going to tell you guys that I'll rule the world. <laughs> and that's, yeah. and I'm, I'm, again, just reinforcing for whoever's <laughs> listening, we don't know what we're doing. But um, Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Well, that's right. We do. But, but we also don't. And it's okay. <laughs> And we're evolving. Yes, exactly. But, um, but my point is, is that 
you know, we're coming back to have these conversations and sort of be the conduit for our education, for our experiences, and for our very privileged exposure to the the broader world. And, you know, it is important to understand that, you know, Beverly isn't as one city happens to be what you represent or the cities that we come from or the cities that our listeners are in. Your city isn't the epicenter of all. And what? uh, Yeah, I know. Sorry. (laughs) I know. You had that like that sheriff's badge printed out. I know. Yeah, no, I just um, I think that (laughs) it's important to remind ourselves that like None of, like I say this to my clients, like none of us are as interesting as we think we are. That's and actually been the most helpful advice Molly's ever given. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just important and, and it helps us all check our ego, but it also reminds us that like we're one of, of many, many, many. And that if we're thinking of like the global economy or like the the sort of survival of our species, just to like quick, just uh, no bar higher than that. <laughs> I do think it's important for people to start to to identify why you're feeling uncomfortable with those issues and when we come to talk to you and I'm, I'm not saying the three of us are exactly the same by any means we all have our our takes but largely I think our, our similarity or our, our through um, thread here is that we're we're all trying to make the world a better place in the way that we think is just and I find that with my coming home to my hometown, I still grapple with this idea that I'm one, like they think of me as one version of myself. Mm-hmm. And so that I, I, I ask you all listening <laughs> to just know that I, I am, tr- I, I as a representative of just me, not the world, but I'm, I'm coming at this as not a representation of national politics versus or like global issues or like the, I'm just trying to figure out what's right. And I think that that is some, like it's really dangerous to say local issues aren't national issues. And mm-hmm. uh, does that resonate with you guys? Uh, yeah, absolutely, that does. And uh, I think that's what's both exciting about community building and local politics and community building on a local level, but also can be a frustration for the reasons that I think you're saying, Molly, that I think sometimes in our heads we have this false dichotomy about, well, those things are handled on the national level, and these are the things that our local community or our local government can handle. And I think I think something that we all sort of really know in our hearts, but it's that cognitive like false dichotomy that gets in our way, is that this is such like a, a trope, I guess, but all politics, all politics is local, and it's a trope because it's true, because actually where we have the most impact, this is what I think is so exciting about local local communities and local government, is where we can actually have the most impact is, is on the local level. I mean, you, you might, especially if you live in Washington, D.C., you might run into your representatives at a coffee shop, but you absolutely will when you are in your local community. You know, you will see your local officials, your local leaders are the people that um, like you know, Jack, you've seen you're on communities, you're on committees with, or you see them at the coffee shop, or you can you can access them really easily. And so I think that gives us a lot of power on the local level. But I also think every single issue that has to do with people, whether it was you know the the yes on three question here in Massachusetts, or climate change and and caring for our environment, or everything in between. All of those things have to do with people, and it's people that make up communities. So that's why, for me, that's exactly what we should be talking mm-hmm. about on the local level. I mean, we should be talking about it all the way up, but I feel like, of course, we should be talking about all those things because they impact real people right. who live who live right here with us. 
So that's what I think can be exciting about if we can yeah. get past the false dichotomy. Right. I agree. And I think it's it's an uphill battle sometimes, but once you start to get people engaged and inspire them and help them realize that they do have power and they can make a difference, that that in itself is so rewarding, that conversion, to give Molly some mar- you know, a marketing term, that mm-hmm. conversion of someone who's like, ooh, anxious, like I want to help, but I don't really know how or I don't really feel like it, let's or, be honest. Or that it's, the other thing is futile. People are like, yeah. well, why does my vote matter? Or, well, right, like, exactly. How are we ever going to change right. this? But in know? all reality, yeah. starting local is where you have the absolute most influence. So, yeah. And I think maybe part of that is, you know, our society is full of lots of distractions. Mm. It's really easy to just put it off and it is when I you're privileged. Out. It, yeah, I but even a, even when you're not, it's yeah. easier. I this is something I battle with all the time. I talk about my privilege all the time. Sure, I I can call myself community organizer, activist, anarchist, whatever, because I'm privileged enough to have the time and resources sure. to do that kind of thing. I know other people who are in my networking group that work full time are building a business, still make time to be on committees with me, still make time to come volunteer. Like, it, it's mind-boggling. So some people are fighting extra hard for that access. Sure. And I think it's about people like us who recognize we have some privilege and recognize that we have the ability to engage with people. Because that's, I think, that's what really community is about. And everyone wants that. You yeah. Know? What I was re- No, you're totally right. What I was referring to is that the people in my life that say things like, I don't vote or, yeah. um, like... Uh, there's not really an issue that resonates with me or I don't know the, um, you know, people running, so I'm not going to vote, which I agree with, by the way, as we've mm-hmm. talked about, we don't want uninformed voters, but inform yourselves yeah. and recognize why you don't need to know who they are because you know that your life largely besides the climate change thing is going to continue on as it is if you don't vote right. because you're comfortable with your world. And I think that, a little bit of this goes back to the whole thesis of this this podcast and this platform that Jackie and I hoped to define here is that you know the being uncomfortable isn't is is not an enjoyable experience always but it's usually a way for you to learn something and to better yourself you know like you're yeah. getting to a place where and we're talking discomfort we're not taking talking pain we're not talking suffering we're talking about the uncomfortable conversations that perhaps you would prefer not to have because they make you uncomfortable and mm-hmm. i think about that when people say when i say privilege what i mean is the privilege to say i don't vote yep. is because you're deciding that other people's eventualities, other people's circumstances don't matter to you. Right. And that, to me, is where I feel like there's a flaw in this in the system. There's a kink yes. in the chain. You Absolutely. Know? I feel like science, silence is complicity. I just pulled up this meme thing that I posted the other day. It says, um, if you are neutral in situations of yes. injustice, you yes. have chosen the side of the oppressor. Yes. And I think that's, that's how I feel about the people who are like, oh, I can't be bothered. I'm like, okay, you're guilty then. And yes. a lot of people find that you know want to call me on my hypocrisy immediately if I bring up the fact that they're not doing anything to move change forward you know it's it's definitely brings up those issues of people getting defensive and not wanting to realize that they are part of the problem if they're not part of the solution and I think that we are all fighting to make everyone part of the solution and that's the that's the hardest part but it's also the most rewarding part once you start seeing it change and evolve which it sounds like you have, Julie. I mean, you got elected, so... 
Yeah. Is there, is there yeah. another election coming up? Is oh, there another one as well? There is. Wow, this is artfully done. Oh, thank um, you. There is. There's an election coming up on November 5th. And so, actually, anybody who's listening in a local municipality in this area has an election that day. And so, you have direct impact over who your local officials will be um, your mayor, your city councilors, your school committee. Different cities have slightly different structures. You may have other people on your ballot. But municipal elections, I think sometimes for the reasons we've been saying, they can feel small or they fly under the radar for a lot of people. Molly, I think I think you're really hitting it right on that sometimes if people feel like things are going along fine and I mm-hmm. feel fine about it, municipal elections are ones that are pretty, they feel easy to opt out on. But I always say, you know, even if you feel good about your incumbent, even if you think the person doing the job is doing a great job, get out there and and vote because it matters and taking the time to do that matters and sending a message to the person who is the incumbent doing the job that that you think they're doing a good job and you want to see more of what they're doing that matters too and so i think i think all the things that you both were saying absolutely resonate with me including i think sometimes one of the things that in the this is just my first term that i'm in now so i've just been on the council for 2 years so i've been learning a lot one of the things that i definitely have heard a few times is don't talk about the big national issues or the things that make us uncomfortable. And I think it has to do with exactly what you were saying, Jackie, and and Molly, where it's discomfort is something that as people we're kind of programmed to avoid. And yet my take on it is we can have really hard, big conversations. We can have conversations where we don't all agree without it devolving. I think the fear is always then it will devolve into broken relationship. Mm-hmm. That's what I hear in that don't talk about these big issues is there is this fear that then it ro- it devolves into broken relationship. And once the relationship is broken mm-hmm. because we disagree so vehemently, how do we move forward? And my take on it is is really different from that. And um, you know what I would say is we can talk about the really big difficult issues. We should talk about them. It's okay to disagree because you know, in, in Beverly, for example, there's nine city councilors. You can't expect that nine people will, will always think the same way about everything. And I think we do a disservice to the people we represent if we appear if we if we only talk about the things where they can discern no difference among us. Mm. We're A not representing everybody because surely everybody in Beverly doesn't agree on everything. Mm. So if the nine of us are always voting alike on every issue because we just talk about the things that we agree about we're not lifting up everybody's voice to begin with but we also don't we also rob i guess ourselves of the ability to even grow as as a group of nine elected officials you know i think it's in our conversations where we don't agree and we have we've had some in the past 2 years and i think those are the moments where actually the most interesting growth as as a group of nine right as a mm-hmm. council maybe in individuals too and i'll say for myself i've definitely learned and grown but i only want to speak for myself you know, what I know about myself to be true. But I would say as a group of nine, there's been an evolution and a change that I think benefits benefits our community. And I think we owe it to people to have those conversations and to solicit, to solicit their input. You know, I was thinking about when we were talking about the impact you can have on the local level. And Molly, you were saying, I think rightly, that people often feel it's futile. Hmm. But just to let people listening know that, you know, again, everybody who's elected to represent you all the way up you have the ability to send them your feelings. You know, call your senator, call your representative. I know that can sometimes feel so big. On the local level, you send your local officials an email. It, it just the the concentration. It's just not so diluted. You know, in mm. the sense that I'm a local 
I'm a local person. So if I get 50 or 60 emails on something, that has a tremendous impact, which is not to say that your representative in Congress doesn't care about your email, but 50 or 60 emails to Congress, you feel like a little drop in a really big bucket Mm -hmm. in your local community. Your, your ripple effect is quicker, you know, and I know there's been issues where, where we've gotten in Beverly, we've gotten 50, 60 emails on something. And, and that matters because 50 or 60 people are taking the time to say this matters to me. And if we got 70, 80, 90, 100, if we got thousands, I mean, there's thousands of registered voters in Beverly. So even think about 60 out of, you know, thousands yeah. is not that much. And right. yet already it has a tremendous impact. So I think just for people to know that it's not futile and the people on the other end, it matters. It matters to me when I get an email or I get a phone call. I, I take that really seriously. So I just want people, maybe it's like a little like hopefulness or something, yeah. but you, you do have, you have power. People have power in their local community and they can leverage it. Speaking of that, where can people find you? That is a good question. Um, so I, I do work in Beverly and I work on Cabot Street. That's my day job at the First Baptist Church. So I have had people just stop in and see if they can chat. And I'm always open to that. And if I can't chat in that moment, I'll set something up. But people can always email me. If it's about a city thing, the best email to use is jflowers, um, just like the plants, um, at beverlymass.gov. They can also, I'm on I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Um, Instagram is at Julie for Beverly. Also, my Twitter handle is at Julie for Beverly. And on Facebook, I actually have two Facebook pages. One is if it's an election season and people want to follow the campaign for updates. It's Julie Flowers for at-large city councilor. And I really try to keep them separate. So that's the campaign one if you want to know what's going on in an election season or get involved with the campaign or see where events are going to be consistently and throughout then I also maintain Julie Flowers Beverly counselor at large as a standing page and that's where I really try to put out city information what's happening when we have council meetings what's going on and I do have monthly online Q&A sessions on through that Facebook page and so what I'll I'll post that they're coming up they're typically Wednesday nights and then for an hour between eight and nine I'm just I'm logged on and any questions that people post in that thread I'll respond to it during that hour. And if I don't have the answer, I'll get it. And if I can't get it within that hour, I'll circle back. So um, those are some of the ways people can get in touch with me. Wow. Yeah. She's notoriously responsive. Um, I do try. I do try. I just have one last question. Please. How many nights, I mean, how many hours a night do you sleep? (laughs) Seriously. Um, Like six, maybe. You know what? I'm in a really, I'm going to be really honest. I'm in a really bad loop and it's my own fault and I keep saying I'm going to do better but by the time I do everything and put my eight-year-old to bed and do the dishes and get everything settled then I sit on the couch and I know I should just go to bed right then right. and I'm like no I'm gonna watch like reruns of Parks and Rec yes and, yeah and then I end up staying up too late doing that I fall asleep on the couch and then I wake up with the dog like all uncomfortable with like my neck all <laughs> messed up and then I finally go to bed so I'm my own worst enemy in a way Aren't um, we all? Yeah, but it's okay. looking for that chance to decompress when what I should be doing is just sleep. Right. Well, yeah. no, good for you. We all need it. I'm just, I'm curious because that sounds like long days every day, but I commend you. Thank you. It's not easy what you're doing and sometimes it's thankless. So woman to woman, community organizer to community organizer, human to human, I, I commend you for everything you're working on and have yet to achieve and all the people you're inspiring in the meantime. Thank you. Well, right back at you. Perfectly <laughs> really, Jackie. Really interested in the work that you're doing and um, also woman to woman just feel like it's really empowering and exciting to see a woman, a young woman doing that kind of work. And 
yeah, I'm excited to see what you keep doing. Thank you. We love you too, Molly. Yes. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I feel it. Don't you worry. <laughs> Molly um, already knows she's my hero. I know. Molly knows she's my hero too. Oh, stop it. Hey, thank you so much for joining. We love it. And folks listening, please uh, like and subscribe. Send us your feedback. If you have questions for Julie, we'll certainly put all the information she listed on our episode description um, probably next week when it goes live. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. And you. don't forget to I vote. Had a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah, don't, don't forget, forget to vote. vote. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.